If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The die is cast, wrote Bostonian lawyer John Adams in a letter to a friend on the 17th of December, 1773. Last night, three cargoes of tea were emptied into the harbour. This is the grandest event which has ever yet happened since the controversy with Britain opened. Adams, who would soon become a leading patriot and later served as the second president of the fledgling United States of America, did not underestimate the importance of the events at Griffin's Wharf the previous night. The people should never rise without doing something to be remembered, something notable and striking, he noted in his diary on the 17th. This destruction of the tea is so bold, so daring, so firm, intrepid and inflexible, and it must have so important consequences. I'm Eleanor Evans, and welcome to episode four of Boston Tea Party Igniting a Revolution. This episode, we'll investigate those consequences. We'll consider the crackdown by Britain's government in the wake of the destruction of the tea and hear more about its significance in the brewing revolution. In our previous episode, we heard about the destruction of the tea, how the event was deliberately non-violent and targeted only the East India Company's tea on three ships in Boston Harbour. If no one was harmed, and it didn't include the violence of other events that both preceded and followed it, why was the act so significant? Here's Professor and author Benjamin Karp, with some more context to help us understand the impact of the protest. The amount of tea that was dumped into the harbor was 46 tons of tea. When a ton of tea could buy you Paul Revere's house in the North End. So if you think of a middle-class house in a very dense part of a city and multiply that figure by 46, you get a sense of the value of the tea that was destroyed. If you try and just do it on the basis of currency, you could say probably between one and $2 million nowadays as far as the value of the money. But I actually think that that might even understate it. I mean, tea was incredibly valuable and it could be sold at a markup. And so I think that using the value of 46 times the value of a middle-class house in the 18th century, then that gives you a sense of the value of what was destroyed. With the tea floating in Boston Harbour, the duties unable to be claimed and the authorities aware of the destruction, what happened to the individuals responsible? Both in London and in Massachusetts, people entertain the idea of, could we prosecute these people for treason? And they're like, no, there's no way that you'll be able to make that stick. All right, well, then can we, you know, prosecute for some kind of lesser crime of disturbing the peace, et cetera, et cetera. But there's no one to prosecute, right? You need witnesses. You need verification. No one is going to come forward. It would be a guarantee of making yourself extremely unpopular if you started to just round up the usual suspects, et cetera, et cetera. What the governor finds is that, and, and the attorney general find is that 
that their authority just doesn't extend that far. They don't have the support of their counsel. They don't have the support of the general court. There's very little that they can do. So as far as criminal prosecution, the matter is essentially dropped. You know, one of the reasons why I think the participants in the Boston Tea Party kept it a secret for so many decades is that they may have feared civil suit by the East India Company suing for damages. But the idea that any of these guys would have been criminally prosecuted, especially after the Americans achieved their independence, nope. There's no repercussions for any of these guys. The only guy who faces repercussions are this guy I mentioned before, Charles Connor, who was beaten up on the wharves for pocketing tea for his own purposes. Otherwise, the men who stood strong and dumped the tea into the harbor, none of them face any criminal prosecution for that. With no individuals able to be traced or prosecuted for the destruction of the tea, what about those who may have had a hand in the protest's organisation? I put this question to professor and author Sarah Purcell. What we don't know is exactly who organized that or how. We know for sure Samuel Adams probably was not there. Did he know about it? Probably. Was he probably in on the organization? Yes. But even that, we're not entirely sure of exactly what he said. There was a lot of debate amongst historians. In the 20th century, some people argued that he had sort of, in one of his speeches, said some code words that it sort of triggered these tea destroyers to leave the town meeting and go to the wharf, but that really isn't proven and and we don't really know. So some part of the organization was secret and that's the part where they organized um, what was going to happen at the wharf that night. And it was a very limited attack. We talked about violence earlier, that there definitely had been violence in the streets of Boston. This was a very non-violent attack and it just destroyed thousands of pounds worth of tea. It's clear that so much remains in the shadows. 250 years on, I asked Benjamin whether it's become any easier to foreground any individuals in this act of civil disobedience. Many of these guys like William Molyneux or Paul Revere had stood strong on behalf of their neighbors when customs officials began poking around in their business. So a lot of these people, it might not have directly affected them, but it affected people they knew and they acted collectively on behalf of their neighbors. So I, I find I often frustrate interviewers who want to talk about particular individuals and raise them up to heroes and protagonists of this story. But I always resist doing that because I really see it as a collective movement to a very significant degree. There's an idea of neighborliness that really animates Bostonians when they're acting against some of these laws. Are there key figures who emerge as particularly well-spoken leaders or leaders who are particularly articulate writers like James Otis or Samuel Adams? Of course. Does Paul Revere engage in these, you know, very kind of visible rides on behalf of these groups? Yes, right? Do we know the names of some of the participants in the Tea Party? Maybe, right? And we can learn more about them and what they had endured, right? Like, I'm very interested in the fact that, you know, the, the bullets narrowly miss five guys during the Boston Massacre who then caught these slain men in their arms or, you know, or tried to bring them to get medical attention, right? Like, that must have, you know, really had an impact on them personally. And I, I try to tell those personal stories in the book. But at the same time, I really see this as an act on behalf of the whole community. Whoever was responsible that night... The act of destruction quickly caused ripples of shock, celebration and solidarity. But while we now know the event as the Boston Tea Party, how was it known in the immediate aftermath? 
In the immediate aftermath, and for many years later, it was just called the destruction of the tea in Boston Harbor, a factual description, right? There's no notion of coming up with some cutesy label for American history students to later memorize, right? It's just the destruction of the tea in Boston Harbor. This was a thing that had happened. In fact, because it was so violent, it might not even be something we want to remember very well. But the first time I see the phrase Boston Tea Party in print or Tea Party is really 1826. And then in the 1830s, it becomes a more common way of having des of describing this event. The historian Alfred Young suggests that this may have either been an elite label to kind of whitewash the event, to kind of say, oh, it was just the Boston Tea Party. It wasn't anything violent or, you know, no hint of mayhem here. Or that it may have been an ironic send up by working class audiences to be like, hey, you want a tea party? Here was a tea party. We destroyed all this tea, et cetera, et cetera. So again, like it doesn't acquire that multi-layered name until 50 years later, really. Initially, it's really just called the destruction of the tea in Boston Harbor. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Though it was yet to acquire the name that's now synonymous with the road to revolution, the act of destruction still quickly took on significance in the 13 colonies. News um, starts to spread very, very quickly because, of course, as I said, the, the Sons of Liberty had created correspondence networks and they became known shortly thereafter as committees of correspondence between various colonies. And they also really had a lot of publication possibility because many newspaper publishers were quite sympathetic or several newspaper publishers were quite sympathetic. So word started to spread really relatively quickly. And in fact, there are sympathetic protests in many other places. Students at Princeton University in New Jersey, for instance, they hanged Thomas Hutchinson in effigy. So it tells you that as far as New Jersey, they were directly linking to the Massachusetts protests because why would they hang the governor of Massachusetts in effigy if they didn't pay attention to what was going on? There are also um, other kinds of tea protests, even though the tax was not being collected in other colonies and did not get as close to being collected. So for instance, a group of women in Edenton, North Carolina, signed an agreement to boycott tea and they were derided in London 
London as a sort of, quote, ladies' tea party. And there's a famous engraving of the Edenton ladies' tea party where they're shown as grotesque and masculine, and they're taking part in the male political realm, which they shouldn't be doing. And this is a way of critiquing them, but they were very much showing their solidarity with the Tea Party and with the Boston protests. So there are protests in New York, protests in the Carolinas, New Jersey, other colonies join in uh, shortly thereafter, within weeks and months. While these protests are clear evidence of increased solidarity among the colonies, the real change was yet to come. Here's Benjamin. One of the myths about the Boston Tea Party is that it was such a galvanizing act of civil disobedience that it immediately inspired American colonists throughout the eastern seaboard to rally toward independence. But that's really not true. It is Parliament's reaction to the Boston Tea Party that will later galvanize a lot of Americans. Because what Parliament does is it passes a series of what are called the Coercive Acts. Later on in textbooks, they'll be called the Intolerable Acts, but that's not what they were called at the time. But the Coercive Acts, the most direct one is the Boston Port Act, saying we are going to shut the entire town of Boston. Boston, you know, close it to almost all trade until it pays the East India Company back for the tea that was destroyed. So in other words, it's going to ruin Boston economically and hold the town of Boston responsible for repayment. And the Bostonians are like, wait, but this wasn't the town of Boston. There were some protests at the body of the people, but we can't control that. And even within the body of people, it was a separate group, these Mohawks that had actually done it. We don't know who they are. Why should the whole town be held responsible? But this is something that really uh, a lot of other colonies are like, oh my gosh, like, Let's send some food to Boston, right? Because a lot of people are going to be thrown out of work and unable to sustain themselves. So, you know, this becomes a big thing. The other acts, there's the Massachusetts Government Act, which in the future is going to limit town meetings and is going to say, okay, the governor's council is now going to be appointed directly rather than chosen by the House of Representatives or the general court. So there's all sorts of changes to the Massachusetts government that's going to make it a little bit more top-down governed and give the people a little bit less input in government. So that change to the Massachusetts Charter is very controversial and worrisome. From those two acts, you can see that what Parliament is trying to do is single out Massachusetts, single out Boston, so that they can kind of like cut it off from the other colonies. But this kind of backfires on them because the other 12 colonies really rally around Massachusetts in response to this. There's also an act called the Administration of Justice Act, which has to do with British officials facing capital trials, being able to ask for a change of venue and face a jury elsewhere. Uh, and then there's the Quartering Act, which has to do with the Army's ability to, to to quarter troops in unoccupied buildings in the American cities. And then later on, there will also be the Quebec Act, which has nothing to do with this directly, but allows uh, uh, certain kinds of the court system and uh, and freedom of religion and, uh, and other things for the formerly French Quebecois in a way that really disturbs a lot of English-speaking people. So these coercive acts are really what get people very, very angry, causes the, the gathering of delegates at the First Continental Congress in September of 1774, and also leads to a lot of backcountry protest and intimidation of what are called the mandamus counselors and all sorts of other actions during 1774, which really kind of accelerate the timetable towards armed insurrection. A note here about the Continental Congress. The first of its kind, it brought together delegates from 12 of the 13 American colonies to Carpenter's Hall in Philadelphia to discuss the colony's future in the face of what they perceived as growing British aggression. Delegates included Samuel Adams and John Adams, both representing Massachusetts, as well as George Washington, future leader of the Continental Armed Forces and first president of the United States. During meetings throughout September and October of 1774, delegates considered joint colonial interests and how they might coordinate resistance to British rule, which was increasingly seen as zealous and unfit. 
A reminder here of how disparate the interests of the colonies had been just a short while before. Here's Benjamin. It's sort of odd in a lot of ways. I mean, the colonists have very different interests. You have rice and indigo growers with a heavy enslaved population in South Carolina. You have the tobacco growers of Maryland and the Chesapeake. You know, the middle colonies are quite diverse, whereas New England is a little bit more homogeneous in terms of its congregationalism. So, you know, very different places with very different environments and economic interests. It it doesn't seem necessarily natural that these 13 colonies would ally with one another any more than that they would ally themselves with the Canadian colonies or the Caribbean colonies. So, uh, you know, right up until 1776, it's not at all clear that these 13 colonies are going to stand strong with one another. There is the meeting of the First Continental Congress in September of 1774. That's when you start to have a more enduring kind of unity in terms of these delegates meeting with one another in Philadelphia. But prior to that, there's no formal apparatus by which these colonies would be united with one another. And in fact, these, these colonists often had disputes with one another over over uh, boundaries, over Western settlements. Uh, You know, there were outright fights among some of these colonies in Vermont and Pennsylvania. You know, so again, we would not naturally see these colonies as being united with one another before 1774. And even in 1774, if you had asked most colonists, they would have very vehemently disagreed with one another on whether American independence was a good idea. While independence was not yet decisively on the table, by late 1774, the colonies had begun to take stronger measures as a unit. One of the first decisions of Congress was to endorse the Suffolk Resolves, passed in Suffolk County, Massachusetts, which ordered citizens to not obey the so-called intolerable acts, to refuse imported British goods and to raise a militia. Less than a year after the destruction of the tea, the fallout from the protest had blazed a path towards revolution. Let's remind ourselves what life was like in Boston following these acts. After the imposition of the Coercive Acts and the presence of troops in Boston, Boston becomes a much more unpleasant place if you are a son of liberty or someone who supports the Sons of Liberty. The town has been shut to all trade. There are troops on Boston Common. You are living under a, a much more explicitly military governor. You know, so a lot of the most ardent patriots are forced to kind of flee. And there's a sense that the fortifications that have been built along Boston Neck are now going from enemy lines, right? Even though they're all ostensibly supposed to be British subjects. And so this creates a lot of economic difficulties for the people of Boston. And it now creates this very scary notion of of living under military occupation. I asked Benjamin about the British perception of the acts and if they had any sense of the backlash they would incur. Did they worry that the attempt to control, in their eyes, an errant colony would have these wider-reaching ramifications? I mean, Parliament is faced with some bad choices. I mean, as a matter of pride, they can't just keep backing down, right? Otherwise, their authority has no meaning at all. You know, they felt that they needed to take a firm line or the colonies would continue to defy all acts of Parliament, right? Like, if they're they're going to have supreme authority over the American colonies, then they have to be willing to back that authority up. And so when you've got this recalcitrant colony... They've eventually got to turn the screws to it after years of protests and intimidation of British officials. Let's take a closer look at the impact of this turning of the screws, as Benjamin called it, on the other American colonies. Here's professor and author Sarah Churchwell. When Boston held the line, of course, what it did was it mobilised and strengthened the boycotts across the other colonies. And it... Uh, It was a heartening event. Uh, You know, people could really take encouragement from it. And so it definitely spread the revolutionary sentiment because very quickly the Crown responded in punishment. They tried to strip political power from Massachusetts. And not only did that incite further 
political protest and radicalize more Americans or more, I should say, more colonists who might have been sitting on the fence at that point or thought it's not my fight. Increasingly, they start to see these encroachments by the crown, therefore, as warning signs that everybody needs to recognize. And indeed, some of the Sons of Liberty tried to convince people, merchants and capitalists back in Britain, that this was a shot across the bow that every Englishman should be worried about because the crown was taking away economic and political independence and breaking what they saw as the fundamental social contract that said taxation comes from the consent of the governed and that there can be no taxation without representation, which is now a phrase totally associated with the Boston Tea Party and with American independence, that principle of no taxation without representation being increasingly taken away from the crown in response to the Boston Tea Party. And all that did was escalate and radicalize colonists around North America. On the 22nd of April, 1774, Britain's Prime Minister, Lord North, defended the Coercive Acts in the House of Commons. The Americans have tarred and feathered your subjects, he said, plundered your merchants, burned your ships, denied all obedience to your laws and authority. Yet so clement and so long forbearing has our conduct been that it is incumbent on us now to take a different course. Whatever may be the consequences, we must risk something. If we do not, all is over. I asked Sarah Purcell for her take on how else, from the perspective of the British Parliament, these coercive laws were justified. These are colonies, right? So the whole idea is they can and must be ruled. And the Tea Party is seen as such a violation. You know, it's not just about Thomas Hutchinson, but Thomas Hutchinson stood for crown power in Boston, in Massachusetts. And so this utter disregard for him and utter flaunting of his authority and the authority of the government to impose control through the British East India Company is really seen as, like I said, beyond the pale. And what they're really concerned about is because of the sympathetic protests that were starting to take place in other colonies, they thought that Massachusetts was the hotbed of the worst kind of resistance. And it had been accelerating again. Things had been a little quieter in the beginning of the 1770s, but this seemed not only to have reignited the protests of the 1760s, but it was ramped up and it was much worse in kind than what had happened in the 1760s. And so from their perspective, it risked getting completely out of hand and spreading to other colonies. Now, they probably ministers, parliamentarians, even royal officials in the colonies, they were underestimating the breadth and depth of the resistance and the fact that it wasn't just Massachusetts where this was taking place. There was also organizing and pamphleting and newspaper articles and average men and women taking part in the resistance in many other colonies as well. And so what happens up through the beginning even of the Revolutionary War the following year, 1775, is that they think if they could just get Boston and Massachusetts under control, it will then fizzle out everywhere else. But the opposite happens, like trying to control Massachusetts and trying to impose what they saw as perfectly legitimate control actually helps to accelerate into an actual war instead of just some kind of civil disobedience. Rather than bringing the colonies under control, as Sarah just alluded to, tensions from the coercive acts passed in direct response to the destruction of the tea, were driving resentments to breaking point. In September 1774, Jonathan Shipley, the Bishop of St Asaph, had challenged the effectiveness of the acts in a published speech in defence of the colonies. 
Let us coolly inquire, what is the reason of this unheard of innovation, he said. Is it to make them peaceable? My lords, it will make them mad. Will they be better governed if we introduce this change? Will they be more our friends? The least that such a measure can do is to make them hate us. I asked Sarah Purcell what importance she places on the intolerable acts. I think it's incredibly important because if the coercive acts had never been passed, it's hard to figure out exactly that the Revolutionary War would have resulted. So let's put it the other way. That's kind of a counterfactual way of putting it. The coercive acts directly led to the Revolutionary War's beginning because the the port is closed, troops are there, including very high command of those troops. It's extremely clear that military control of Massachusetts is going to happen. And if that had not taken place, I'm not going to say the Revolutionary War never would have happened. Like the American Revolution probably still might have occurred in some other way, but it would have certainly taken longer and it would have taken other forms and it would not have probably resulted in exactly a war because part of having a war means you need to have organized military forces, right, opposing one another. And so by stationing a large section of British troops in Boston, you get the chance to have a war because the British army is there. They choose military means to enforce what's going on. And those military means, they accelerate things. And because the resisting colonists don't really back down. Lord North told the House of Commons that we are now to a establish our authority or give it up entirely. So the idea that the die has been cast and it's important, um, the prime minister is saying like we have to establish British authority or we're going to have to give it up entirely. Well, there isn't any leeway once you have made that the policy, right? You're either going to establish authority or have to give it up. And that is what happens. Then we could talk about how the Revolutionary War started, but they are cracking down and trying to use troops. And in fact, Samuel Adams himself is part of the, part of the answer of how the revolution starts or how the war starts because he flees the city of Boston in 1775, end of 1774, along with other leaders of the opposition and is out in the countryside in Lexington and Concord. And the colonists are starting to collect weapons and collect gunpowder and start to ramp up um, and prepare for possible military resistance against the British troops. The troops are sent to arrest Adams and others in first Lexington and then Concord. They are warned and they get away, but that is where the colonial militias, also known as Minutemen, right? They, they resist the British in, on April 19th of 1775. And that's, those are the beginning battles of the Revolutionary War. And that really trips off a whole series of things. I didn't mention this. The other thing that happens as a result of the coercive acts is that it absolutely galvanizes the other colonies in support of Boston and they create the First Continental Congress. So it creates not only intercolonial resistance and support, but an actual institution which starts to look even more like a rival governing institution. The First Continental Congress is already in place by the time the Revolutionary War starts, and therefore it is available to do such things as create the Continental Army to fight the British Army in a much larger war, to appoint George Washington as the Commander-in-Chief, and eventually, a whole year later, to declare independence as well. 
well. So the Boston Tea Party and the crackdown in the coercive acts that comes right afterwards, I think you can say has a very, very huge hand in leading into the beginning of the American Revolution, certainly the beginning of the Revolutionary War, and it's the series of events that transforms colonial resistance into an actual revolution. From what we've heard in this episode, it's clear that the destruction of the tea, later known as the Boston Tea Party, is a vital staging post on the road to revolution. But how soon after the event was it given this significance? When did people realise it was so important? Well, it was instantly regarded as a turning point in what was increasingly being seen as a struggle for American independence and and, and increasingly being couched in those terms. The day afterwards, John Adams called it the most magnificent movement of all of the protests that had yet taken place. He called it the last effort of the patriots, and he said that it had a dignity, a majesty, a sublimity. And that's the day afterwards, right? So they absolutely saw it as a pivotal event and one that would make clear that they were not going to back down. And if they weren't going to back down, everybody knew that where that was taking them was what Parliament and the Crown would consider treason. So the destruction of property was not a treasonous act, but as they moved toward declarations of independence, it became clear that this was on the cards. But still, of course, many people hoped to avoid it. People did not want war. They recognized that it would be a civil war, which it was. We now call it the revolution. You call it the war of independence. But they knew it as a civil war because that's exactly what it was. And it was brother against brother and sister against sister. And families did divide over it as they do in civil wars. And people were just trying to avoid bloodshed in general as responsible people do. So there were lots of people who were, in theory, in favor of political independence, but opposed to it happening right then and thought that it would only make matters worse and did not want to commit treason, were either afraid of committing treason or on principled grounds didn't want to commit treason, felt that loyalty to the crown. So there was a sense, though, that all of this was coming to a head. And at the same time, the British began increasingly to send armies, particularly to Boston, to try to shut down this movement. They thought this was a little group of loudmouth protesters and all they needed was a big show of British force and everybody would back down and they would go back to normal. So they were bringing in generals and troops and that, but in fact, that inflamed tensions and increasingly backfired. And what happened, which was inevitable, is exactly what happened with the Boston Massacre in 1770, was that eventually when you have armed people on either side of a growing bitter divide, violence will happen. It's just a matter of time. And it's a matter of what is the incident that will finally strike the match that, you know, makes it all burst into flame. And in the case of the American independence, it was a little bit over a year after the Boston Tea Party. It was in April 1775 when the battles of Lexington and Concord were fought. It was clear that the British generals in Boston who sent their uh, armies out to Lexington and Concord on that day, they were not seeking a battle. They were after uh, munitions and armaments, which the rebels were stockpiling. But as they marched, that's when Paul Revere, uh, and he did go on a ride, although he didn't do it alone. They had a kind of chain of messengers who went out to let everybody know that these armies were on the march and that they were coming after their 
their stores after the munitions. So they went and hid them. And then they let everybody know that they were coming and people stood up to defend their villages. And then at that point, it is confusion. To this day, people argue over whether the first shots were fired in Lexington or in Concord. They argue over whether it was the British who shot first or Americans who shot first. It was chaos. Nobody was sure what happened, but everybody was armed. Everybody was angry. Everybody was frightened and battles ensued. And once those happened, the revolution had begun in April 1775. Next time on Boston Tea Party Igniting a Revolution. In our final episode, we'll investigate what the Boston Tea Party means today in both American and global history 250 years later. It's totally symbolic and it's very, very personal. It's something that Americans are very proud of. It's something that just everybody knows. You know, we breathe it in with the air as we're growing up. So I don't think you can overstate the importance of the Boston Tea Party now. We'll discover the myths that have sprung up from the shadowy events. There are some famous eyewitness accounts, like people who saw certain things happen. In fact, um, George Robert Twelves Hughes, the shoemaker, he claimed that John Hancock was at the tea party. And he claimed that he knew this because he had made a pair of shoes or boots for Hancock. And we'll delve into its complex, contested legacy. It raises these disagreements again and again of, of order and obedience on the one hand, and then disorder in defense of certain rights on the other. And I think that Americans ought to have mixed feelings about the Boston Tea Party. Many thanks to my experts for this episode. Benjamin Karp is Professor of History at Brooklyn College and the CUNY Graduate Center, and the author of books including Defiance of the Patriots, The Boston Tea Party and the Making of America. Sarah Churchwell is Chair of Public Understanding of the Humanities and Professor of American Literature at the University of London. Sarah Purcell is Professor of History at Grinnell College, Iowa, and the author of books that include Sealed with Blood, War, Sacrifice and Memory in Revolutionary America. This episode was written and researched by me, Ellen Evans, and produced by Sam Leal Green. Additional checks were by Gordon O'Sullivan. Thanks for listening. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.